Welcome to the Eater Upsell, a podcast from Eater.com, which is the country's authority on food and dining and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. My name is Daniel Janine. I'm an associate producer here, and I'm joined by Amanda Clute, our editor-in-chief. Hi, Dan. Uh, Every week on the Eater Upsell, we explore interesting topics that we've been covering on Eater. Uh, We talk to our own journalists. We talk to journalists outside of Eater and interesting people making news across the country and around the world. Recently, we've been talking and writing a lot about Michelin. The Michelin Guides for 2018 for the United States just came out. They came out in D.C., Chicago, San Francisco, and New York. And across the pond, they came out in London. And we want to talk a little bit about why Michelin still matters, if it still matters, and some of the controversy around their choices. To start off the episode, I am going to do the first of what I hope to be a long tradition of, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 60 second background information somethings. We'll come up with the name of it later. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to dive into the history of Michelin. Real, real quick, if you know it already, you can fast forward. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and real quick, please help us out by subscribing to the show uh, and giving us a rating and reviewing it. But most importantly, just talk about it, even if there's no one around. (laughs) Just keep it at the top of your mind. Yeah, that'd be really helpful. If you have suggestions for Dan's 60-second segment, um, please send them to upsell at eater.com. Ready? Go. In 1895, André Michelin and his younger brother, Edouard Michelin, developed a new design for a tire at their rubber company. The biggest difference between these tires and regular tires were that these were filled with air and not glued onto the vehicle. The problem was there wasn't enough cars. So in 1900, the brothers came up with the genius idea of writing a guide to France, thinking it would get people into their cars more. The guide contained lists of hotels and restaurants, and most importantly, information on where to fill up your car. By 1927, the guide was predominantly filled with restaurants and began doling out stars. The modern star system as we know it, the three-star system, began in 1936, and the guide landed in America in 2005. How'd I do? I mean, okay. Yeah. I don't. I find that backstory pretty boring. I think what's interesting is Whoa! like, <laughs> I think we could just say, tire company started restaurant guide in the 20s, came to America in 2005. I think it is important to note that the guide was developed as a as a way to get chauffeurs driving around the countryside burning out their tires. These people weren't sitting in a room saying, how can we how can we expand the culinary horizons of right. French people, French drivers, I guess. They were saying, how can we get people to burn rubber? I think that's a fun cocktail party story, but not super relevant to what right. we're talking about today, which is Ooh, okay. <laughs> which is how what Michelin means today, is it significant? Yeah. Uh, why is it more significant than other guides, maybe? And then mm-hmm. what are our problems with it? Well, I think then we should say that it is... The international guide. It is the international guide. It is the Oscar. I mean, it's kind of like the... Kind of like the Oscars. It's like the Oscars. I think people use it as shorthand to yeah. to telegraph quality. Like, I'm eating at a two Michelin star place means something to a lot of different people around the world. It is the one thing from the food world, I think, that carries to pretty much everyone. Right. We're going to talk a little bit about our criticisms of Michelin, Mm -hmm. but we should point out that this is one of the only guides paying for people to eat around the world. They Mm -hmm. are supposedly unbiased inspectors. They spend Michelin's money. They're not taking comps. They are supposed to be uh, uncorruptible. 
So I think that yeah. is worth pointing out that these are people who are dining everywhere and know a lot about food and know what they're doing. And if you believe in the guide, you will have a similar quality experience, whether you're eating at a two-star place in Japan or in France or in San Francisco. So I think while we can quibble about the framework and what their expectations are and mm -hmm. why they give someone two or three stars or who they're choosing, at least that baseline is there of paying for meals and having some sort of framework that goes across the entire right, exactly. world. Which is why it's even more important that they do a really good job and why I think mm -hmm. it's our job as restaurant obsessives and cultural critics mm -hmm. to talk about what we think they could be doing better. Yeah, they have an immense amount of power. And with that power, <laughs> I'm not going to say I'm it. not going to spider <laughs> uh, But they have an immense amount of power and it's really important for them to be conscious of what that power is doing to the industry. And how they can evolve over the years. You know, they've been doing yeah. this for 80, 90 years. They should be thinking more about how the world of dining is changing today. Mm -hmm. And it may be because of them. They may be the mm -hmm. single most important driving force in the change in the world's change of. I mean, that's overselling it a little bit. But well, sure. you know, <laughs> we're going to get on them a bit, so uh, <laughs> we're right. allowed to. We should give them their due at the top, yeah. and then we can then we can delve into the They're... problems for people who stick around. To get started, we are going to talk to Ryan Sutton, who is our chief food critic, and he is an avid follower of Michelin. First things first, why are you so fascinated by Michelin? Why do we cover it so much? Year over year, and I've been covering Michelin for probably over a decade, maybe even 12 years now. Uh, year over year, it's always the most read thing, or one of the most read things I write. But I would argue that regardless of traffic, uh, I think Michelin is important to cover because uh, you have an international organization that pays people full-time to eat around the world in a whole lot of cities and issue pretty damning judgments or the opposite of damning judgments, incredible judgments about restaurants that employ thousands and tens of thousands of people worldwide. And so what Michelin does impacts people's livelihoods. And in as much as it impacts how people earn their money and how people spend their money, I think it behooves us uh, to be a diligent in how we cover them and also to be critical in our coverage of them. How does a star rating impact a livelihood? Well, it, it's hard to say about how an individual specific star rating uh, impacts. I, I think any restaurateur will tell you it's uh, the sum of a whole lot of things. I was talking to Frederick Berselius of Asuka, and his restaurant, Asuka, reopened uh, last year, and it was immediately awarded two stars, which is pretty cool. There's only about 10 or so restaurants in New York with that accolade. Um, and I asked him, did, did it really make a big difference when you got that, uh, when you got that surprisingly, that second star? And he said it was a few things. He said, uh, yeah, it did make a difference, um, but also made a difference that the New York Times gave it three stars. It also made a difference that, uh, forgive me, Ryan Sutton, <laughs> that's me, gave, gave it Asuka four stars. Four stars. Yep. And it all kind of happened at the same time. Asuka uses a ticketing system called Talk, where people prepay for their reservations. And I noticed not too long after all these reviews came out, uh, Asuka was doing pretty well. They were sold out on a whole lot of nights. Uh, yeah, so uh, stars make a difference, but it's it, it's not just the stars. It's the larger culinary community that determines you know the fate of restaurants. What are the some of the biggest surprises from the 2018 lists? I don't want to say that the demotion of Jean-Georges was a surprise to me um, because I've been eating there. And <laughs> so you, you knew, you saw this coming. Well, you know, uh, I would have argued that per se should have lost a star, uh, but it didn't. Um, but I understand it because even though I you know, made a pretty good case against per se a few years ago and demoting it to two stars in my own review, 
uh, it was more of a, a contextual review in terms of what they were charging and the evolution of their cuisine. It wasn't a uh, criticism necessarily of their execution. They've always been executing at a high level. Uh, Jean Georges has been putting out uh, objectively bad to mediocre food over the past year or so. Uh, so in that sense, uh, Michelin's decision made sense, even though I think per se uh, deserved to be demoted at one point. I think I one think- other thing I want to ask about Jean Georges. I read in your piece that. They gave him a warning in July that this was going to happen and gave him a chance to make up for it. Have you heard of that ever happening before? I don't know if I've necessarily ever heard of that happening uh, per se. But when I I talked to Michael Ellis, the director of the Michelin Guide, he said uh, this is common practice for any given restaurant, especially when it's the subject of a possible uh, downgrade. Mm -hmm. Uh, He says he does this for a lot of restaurants uh, when it's moving from the uh, three-star to the two-star or equally from the two-star to the one-star. Uh, Michelin assured me that they uh, they won a whole bunch of times, uh, possibly as many as 10 over the past 18 to 24 months, which is a lot of time to be eating at a restaurant, a lot of money to be spending at a restaurant. You know, dinner is, uh, you know, 238 before tax and tip uh, for the tasting menu. I think 148 or 138 for the four course menu. Um, And yeah. And so Michelin is I think the fact that they call a restaurant and let them know where things are are going really highlights a difference between Michelin and and local critics. Uh, Local critics aren't in conversation with restaurants. Uh, We eat there and, you know, for us, criticism is a uh, is a point of service. You know, we advise people what to get and what not to get. And it's also a discussion of, you know, the larger importance of a restaurant. And while we talk to the chefs during the fact-checking process, we d- we're not in conversation with them. We're not, we're not trying to push back against what they're doing. That's what the review is. And, you know, we're having a conversation with our readers, not with the chefs. And that's what, that's what is a little different about Michelin. Uh, the fact that they're having these conversations almost suggests that they're coaching the chefs uh, to a certain extent. I, I bet well, and Mich- that they want more three-star restaurants. Like, it's good for Michelin to have so many three-star restaurants. It's good for Michelin to have more three-star restaurants, and it's good for Michelin when their marquee chefs maintain that status. Right, and John George will be a better brand ambassador for Michelin if he actually is happy about his rating. What other big surprises did you see this year? I think one of the biggest surprises this year is is the same surprise we saw last year, the year before that, the year before that. It's the fact that Atelier Crenn, uh, one of the best restaurants in America, has remained off of the three-star category. People pay a lot of attention to Atelier Crenn for a lot of reasons. One of the reasons I pay attention to Atelier Crenn, it's one of the few modernist restaurants uh, in this country. Uh, they, they do some really fun things uh, with multi-syllabic ingredients and complicated techniques, and they serve it in a kind of this chill place in San Francisco. It's kind of a, a long-tasting menu. You only have about under 10 avant-garde, molecular, whatever you want to call it, restaurants of that sort in the country, along with, I don't know, a, a Linnea in Chicago, which has three stars, and a mini bar by Jose Andres, which has two stars. Uh, the other reason people pay attention to it, for better or for worse, is because the chef happens to be a woman. Um, there are only about... Uh, 20% of the chefs throughout this country are women in terms of head chefs. When you get to Michelin, you have even fewer than that 20% number. In San Francisco, actually, it is about 20% uh, who have stars. Uh, In New York, it's a little bit lower. It's about 8%. Uh, But zero of those chefs who are women, who happen to be women, have three stars in the United States of America, which is pretty weird. And being that Atelier Crenn is just objectively, I think most people would argue, such an amazing place. It's weird that year after year after year, Michelin has overlooked her for that search star. Since she got her second star, they promoted so many other restaurants run by men to that third star category. So you think it's sexism, not that the reviewers there just don't happen to like Atelier Crenn as much as you do? You know, it's, 
it's hard to allege sexism. I don't think anyone goes into a restaurant and says, I don't like this restaurant because uh, this chef is a woman. You know, I don't think Michelin inspectors are bad people. They're, they're smart. They know a lot about food. I think they're good people. But I think what one has to ask herself when uh, assessing a restaurant is if your entire guide has omitted women at the three-star level over the course of, gee, I don't know, 10 or 11 or 12 years in an entire country – uh, you might be saying to yourself, we don't want to change our standards, but if your standards are almost universally favoring men over women, you have to ask yourself whether those are the right standards. Somewhat tautologically, but I, I stand by that statement. What are the standards? Have they laid that out ever? Like what the difference is between two and three stars? Uh, whenever you ask Michael Ellis, you know, what they look for in, uh, in a restaurant, whether it be one, two or three stars, uh, they always give a pretty a reasonably bland blanket statement of execution of cuisine, uh, creativity, uh, quality of product, and, and so on and so forth. Consistency. Uh, consistency, things like that. Uh, none of it is would make you say, wow, uh, they uh, espouse or promulgate standards that are, are different from other people. Uh, what's more interesting about Michelin is their own execution and because sometimes it simply is hard to tell why one restaurant gets, you know, one versus two versus three. And, and, and part of that as a product is that they don't consider themselves critics or journalists or storytellers. Uh, they consider themselves inspectors. Uh, they're assessors. They go in. Uh, I'm told that when they leave a, a given restaurant, uh, they spend about two hours writing a, a report based on their assessment. And, and then they, I think, have these arguments with themselves. And, and generally speaking, uh, the rating for any given restaurant is supposed to be uh, unanimous from what I'm told, especially at the higher two and three star levels. Have they been public about how many inspectors they have? Uh, they have not. Okay. I, 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 would, I would love to know that. Uh, we have no idea. What they have been public about is the fact that they are not um, they're not Santa Claus. They can't they can't deliver toys to every single child every year, which is kind of a metaphorical way of saying, you know, they have limited resources. And I remember when when we pressed them on the subject of why there were f so few stars in the Washington, D.C. guide, I think there were 14, 14 or 15 in total. None of them are women, incidentally. Uh, and Michelin responded uh, that uh, they've been under a lot of resource pressure this year because they've been debuting a few new guides. I think they have their Bangkok one coming out in December. Uh, so they're not an organization of unlimited resources like the 50 best list, uh, which is I think most people would argue is objectively worse than Michelin. And I don't think Michelin is terrible or, or worse. I, I think they do a good job. Uh, I, I actually respect them a lot. Um, but, you know, 50 best is the worst. Michelin does a, a pretty good job. They're getting better. I hope they continue to get better. Um, but they've also been vocal about the fact that they are an organization of limited resources and they can't cover every type of cuisine. Um, but again, the flip side of the argument is it's tough when you look at New York and you see no barbecue restaurants, no pizza places, only one Thai restaurant uh, with a star and happens to be a, a restaurant run by um, an American and a, and a Thai American, um, as opposed to a restaurant run by Thais. Not that there should be, uh, you know, quotas for who should run these restaurants, but it's it's not a great look when the most high profile Thai restaurant, you know, the one with, who can afford a publicist, is the one that happens to have a Michelin star. And that, which that, restaurant is that? Uh, that's Uncle Boone's, oh, and it's a great yeah. place. Uh, you know, Ann Redding and I think Matt Danzer or Danzinger. I apologize for mispronouncing his name or forgetting his name. Um, <laughs> But in any case, it, it, it's not a good look when, you know, kind of the uh, the Thai restaurant with a publicist is the one that has a star. It's not a good look when the one Indian restaurant in New York with a Michelin star, uh, Janoon, is the fanciest Indian restaurant in New York, despite all the diversity of, uh, of South Asian cuisines that we have here uh, in New York, from, you know, from Pakistani to South Indian to, you know, all the various states that are 
um, that are represented uh, both in, in, in Murray Hill and, and in Queens uh, and in other fine parts of Manhattan. I think they spend all their money going to John George 10 times. <laughs> they probably, yeah. That's, you just do the math and you've easily $10,000 plus. So your argument is they're, they're not being democratic enough. They're not going to enough different types of restaurants, both in terms of how expensive it is and the types of cuisine that they're covering. Well, I'll, let me push back on that gently, um, but I, I think you more or less have it right. Uh, they're going to these restaurants, um, but uh, they're relegating foods that a lot of people who, for better or for worse, deem as ethnic to their so-called bib gourmands category, their so-called cheap eats category. Restaurants where you can supposedly have two courses plus a glass of wine uh, and or dessert for $40 or less. And a lot of those restaurants are uh, Thai. I think you have a few Indian ones in there. Uh, you have at least one Ethiopian. Uh, you also have, oddly, Olmsted in New York, where you can easily spend $100 a person. <laughs> That's uh, a very expensive yeah. restaurant. Which is pretty weird, which is another way of... Um, I think the interpretation for that one is it's just a consolation prize for not having a star. And so, again, they I think wanted that, to give it to him, but it didn't come through. So they're like, let's, let's put you on the oh, big Vermont list. Yeah. But I, I, again, I, I think it's a bummer that you look at these two lists and the starred list is largely favored uh, towards uh, European, American, Japanese restaurants, whereas the starred list is more rest of world, so to speak. The, uh, the non-starred list, that is, the Bib Gourmands. And I, you know, one of the things that we've been trying to do as food critics is not to kind of have that, uh, that false dichotomy. And we've been trying to do a better job at uh, looking outside of the, uh, the publicist restaurant zone and, and be more small Catholic, see, um, and open-minded and ecumenical about you know, who we choose to review and who we choose and to whom we choose to award stars. So what are, what are some of the things you would change? It sounds like transparency is one of them. Yeah, it would be transparency, and I would also let the I would let the inspectors have some personality in in the in the way they uh, they describe these restaurants. I mean, listen, regardless of whether you agree with these restaurants or not, you know, Michelin inspectors are eating out night after night after night. Uh, I hear sometimes they have to eat out two nights a week. Um, I'm sure they have an incredible knowledge about food. I don't doubt that, uh, but it's hard to tell from reading the guide because the blurbs. And I'm actually going to quote. Uh, the late, great Josh Ozersky uh, once argued that the blurbs are crappily written. That was his words, not mine. And I happen to agree with them. They're incredibly crappily written. Um, they read like bland blurbs out of a Delta Sky magazine. They don't have much to say about the restaurant. Let these people have personalities. Let them tell stories so we can have more of a relationship with the stars and so we can have more of a relationship with them. And they're smart. They know how to do this. And I bet they want to do this. And the Michelin Guide should let them. Ryan Sutton. You can read his reviews at ny.eater.com. We'll be right back. If you're hiring, you know that quality hires keep your business moving forward, but you also know it can take a lot of time to find the right candidate for your job. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click, so you can rest easy knowing that your job is being seen by the right candidates. Then, ZipRecruiter puts its smart matching technology to work, actively notifying quality candidates about your job within minutes of posting so you receive the best possible matches. No wonder 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. ZipRecruiter the smartest way to hire. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by growing businesses of all sizes and industries to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, our listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for 
free. That's right, F-R-E-E. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash eat. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash eat. One more time to try for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash eat. Stephanie, tell us about the panel that you attended and and what it was all about. Yeah, so it was put on by uh, Michelin and chef Charlie Palmer, who owns um, a Michelin-starred restaurant here in New York, Oriel. The point was to promote local restaurants and get people to go to them, to Michelin-starred restaurants. This is Stephanie Tudor, senior editor of Eater New York. There were some really big names on the panel, like Danielle Belude and Gabriel Cruther, and um, Del Posto's executive chef, Melissa Rodriguez. I... Didn't really know what they were going to be talking about, so I just decided to go and see. And I immediately, my guard was up because when Michael Ellis, who moderated the panel, and Ryan told you guys all about him, mm-hmm. he introduced Melissa as a woman. And he didn't introduce... What do you mean he, yeah. he introduced her as a woman? He made sure to reference her gender. And he didn't introduce any of the other chefs by saying they were men. So he would say, as a woman, what do you think about blah? Oh, you mean when she was responding to questions? No, when, he, when, when he was introducing each chef, he said, it's heartwarming that we have a woman on the panel today <laughs> who has a Michelin-starred restaurant because... Michelin can't do anything to change the fact that there aren't more restaurants with owned by or run by women who are uh, Michelin starred. And so and then he continued to reference her gender in questions he asks her, like, what is it like as a woman to run a kitchen? <laughs> what is it like as a woman to warm my heart? <laughs> <laughs> so it sounds like there are two big issues here. One is that. He thinks that Michelin has no responsibility for including more women in the guide. Two, he doesn't even seem to be aware that phrasing the questions like that is problematic. And yeah. calling up her gender is problematic. Right. And I, in a follow-up email to Michelin, asked Ellis to Michael, I don't know what to call him, <laughs> to, when I'm writing, I would say Ellis, asked him to clarify why he used that line of questioning, why he kept referencing her as a woman, and he didn't respond to that inquiry. So I'm not sure where he was coming from on that. How did Melissa respond on the panel? She just went with it? She was cool, calm, and collected. <laughs> I was sitting there burning up. and <laughs> <You're> like, ah! <laughs> She's hmm. just going for it. Right. And she was just really calm and kept saying, I like to check my gender at the door, mm-hmm. and just very professionally responding to him. I'm sure it's not the first time she's been asked questions like that. I'm sure it's not. And in fact, after Michael's portion was over, they opened it up to audience Q&A. And so I then was able to spout off. And (laughs) what did you ask? I asked the chefs and included Ellis in this if they felt any sort of, I said at the upper level of acclaim and being a Michelin starred chef, everyone sort of looks the same. And do any of you feel any sort of any sense of responsibility to help change that and to mentor any chefs that are coming through your kitchen. So this wasn't even a question to Michael Ellis. This was a question to the top chefs who were on the panel. Exactly. Well, Michael Ellis has nothing to do with it. No, I know, but... That's what he would like to say. Okay, got me. (laughs) I was like, let me explain something to you, Dan. (laughs) And what did they say? None of them said anything. Oh, cool. Yeah, it was great. It was an unanswered question. Um, Melissa wanted to jump in on that, and I understand why she did. And she said, for a long time in my career, I very much tried to just play off and just not even address the fact that I'm a woman and also that I'm a Latina. Um, And... And lately, I have felt a sense of I have felt a sense of responsibility to make sure to mentor 
chefs and try to bring them up in the kitchen, whether they're women or people of color, and and make sure everyone has equal opportunity. Danielle Belude did jump in to make sure we knew that Melissa had worked at his kitchen for many years. <laughs> Good. And that was it. It's just FYI, I need to take a little credit <laughs> yeah. for her success. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, carry on. Mm-hmm. Not going to answer the question. <laughs> <laughs> what do you, I mean, this is just your opinion, but what do you think about Michael's stance that Michelin is not responsible for the fact that there are not that many female chefs in the guide. Well, I think it's something that we at Eater talk about a lot, and you make sure that we think about a lot, Mm -hmm. is that we need to be very inclusive in our coverage, in our everyday coverage, and making sure that we are covering restaurants that are owned by women and people of color because it is such a male-dominated industry, and how is that going to change if the attention isn't ever spotlighted on other people? My opinion is that Michael Ellis, or whoever is in charge of, because it's super unclear, of (laughs) directing these inspectors, could say, you know, make sure you go to X number of female or people of color-owned restaurants when you're looking. And you you don't have to say that they are deserving of a Michelin star, but Mm -hmm. check them out. Right. It's not like a quota of this many three-starred female chefs, but go try all the places. Um, And I'm sure that Ryan told you all about the females that were snubbed or perceived as snubbed and potentially could be included in New York. So it's not that they don't exist, but they're they're not included for whatever reason. When when we asked Michelin to clarify what Michael meant by his statements, they sent over um, their criteria. <laughs> oh, great. Which are quality of the products, mastery, value for money, consistency, and the personality of the chef in his or her cuisine. Really? Mm-hmm. Huh. So that I was really interesting. That. Maybe they just don't like the personalities of women. <laughs> Seems like maybe. A, a spokeswoman did send that over. And they, she went on to say, increasingly more women are entering the profession in this country and around the world. Michelin is not involved in culinary education or recruitment. We deeply value diversity of all kinds and are pleased to see the trend toward greater diversity in the culinary field. Right. They want to they put it on someone else, which right. is the same thing that 50 Best does. They say, like, oh, the women at high-end restaurants just don't exist, so not our fault. Exactly. So, Amanda, you you stopped me from saying it at the top of the episode, but we've learned how powerful Michelin is, have we not? Yes, we have. And I think we were reminded by Ryan that they are doing important work and they are paying for people to be eating around the world, which is great, Mm -hmm. uh, even though we have some problems with them. With great power (laughs) comes great responsibility. Yep. And, And for me, hearing that they launched in Washington... But, and then they apologized, but their Washington coverage wasn't exactly what they wanted it to be because they were opening in Bangkok and wherever. Mm-hmm. That To me, that's really messed up. Right. Like, do a city right. Don't yeah. expand to Taipei until you finish what you set out to do in Washington. Because if you're a deserving restaurant in Washington who wasn't given their fair shake, it, no one's going to say, oh, you know, maybe the Michelin didn't get there. Everyone thinks this this grand, mysterious guide went to all the restaurants. Went to all the restaurants and did not award them a star. They're, they're not going to release something saying, "Oh, we only made it once. Uh, we'll get there next year." <laughs> and yeah, maybe they are doing the dining world a service. You know, people aren't using the guide to drive their cars anymore, 
I mean, they're making money, seemingly. Uh, and it's amazing. Brand play for Michelin still looks great. But if they're going to do that service, they have to do it 100% right, or else they're going to miss people, they're going to miss cuisines, and they're going to miss, I don't know, entire cities and areas that are deserving of this recognition, and not getting it is just going to further the divide between those restaurants. I think uh, that's a very serious and important critique. I think you have a a slightly more minor and petty critique that I'd like to talk about. You know what? I I do, Amanda. Uh, One of the things that really bothers me about Michelin, besides all of their social problems and (laughs) the overlooking, this grand overlooking, is their Twitter accounts. Are terrible. Are terrible. Yeah. It's kind of more, I'm more sad than irked. I'm just like, ah, that's sad. Like, you feel bad. It really feels like people who are totally out of touch trying to be Twitter chill. Right, right, right. That's the problem with, and I think even though it seemed petty for us to complain about this, I think it does reveal something that is wrong with the guys. It's out of touch with today's dining culture. This seems like an attempt to be in touch with today's dining culture. Yeah, like trying really hard to be like, we're relevant. And it's then like they have just, a 29-year-old person on staff and they're like, you should <laughs> you do, do the, the tweets. tweets. <laughs> Will you uh, give us some examples I'll of give some, you, of yeah, some I'll give bad you, tweets? Yeah, I'll give you a taste of, here are just, just from the last year, some of the tweets that I find particularly, I guess annoying is the right word, yeah. uh, from Michelin Guide New York. Keep in mind, these are people that have never, we've, we've never known who these people are. No, they're just anonymous right? people. Yeah. It got soaked on my way back from lunch, and I'm assuming it will start pouring again just in time for the 11 blocks I have to walk to dinner. <laughs> Maybe that person meant to tweet it on their personal account <laughs> and messed yeah. up because that has nothing to do with anything. Also, right. are they trying to be relevant talking about walking between meals? <laughs> or I don't know. <laughs> okay. The service was off at a recent dim sum go-go visit, but luckily the dim sum was still up to par. Hashtag all about the food. Oof. <laughs> also, it was hashtag dim sum go-go. Yeah. Not even at dim sum go-go. But also, aren't they, aren't they all about the full package? <laughs> right. Just, yeah. Hashtag it's all about the food. On leaving a restaurant at midnight, having paid $700, we were told to have a good evening. Perhaps that was the evening. <laughs> Hashtag life of an inspector. <laughs> That's <so> terrible. <laughs> yeah, so it's even weird that Michael Ellis, is, who's the president, it, it is even weird that we hear his voice. It's almost, I like the idea that nothing we hear, I'm not like right, the idea. It's but peeling back nothing. the curtain in a way that is not, this is it's so not satisfying. Dr- yeah. It's like either be totally mysterious yeah, or be transparent. This but is don't like, do this weird exactly. in between. And it also just, it just sounds very like much like an old person tweeting this. <laughs> I, I can't imagine this is a 29 year old. In my opinion, one of the bigger snubs is the Cosme team. Uh, under the watchful eye of, of at, Danny Soto Ines at Atla is the place for tasty hashtag Bib Gourmand hashtag Mexican food at Enrique Alvera. Yeah, not only have you snubbed them with your Bib Gourmand that no one gives a <laughs> yeah, shit no one, no about. one wants the Bib. No one. Yeah. No one cares. Hey, no don't one worry. wants the Bib Gourmand. Yeah, but at least they w- took to Twitter to tell you that your food was tasty. Tasty and hashtag Mexican. And yeah, but make sure you get the old dude chef in there. Don't just add <laughs> Not just Danny her. Soto and S. No. 
It, he is, if there's tasty food, you know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Amanda. Cool. Um, we did it. Are we done? We're done. We so, gotta, we gotta go home. Yeah, we gotta. Pedro's go gotta go home. I gotta go home. So thanks to everyone for listening to this episode of the Eater Upsell. Uh, as always, please email us upsell at eater.com. If you like the show, it'd be great if you rated and subscribed and passed it to someone else who you think would like it. The Upsell is hosted by us, Daniel Janine, Amanda Clute. Studio team is Pedro Alvira, Miles Ewell. Paige Bethman, Carrie Clements, uh, Amanda Clute is our editor-in-chief and also the host of the podcast. Okay. And our executive producer is Maureen Giannone. We'll see you later. Thanks for listening. 